Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista, and today I have my close friend and colleague, Aaron Good. Uh, we're going to be talking about the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the very dangerous situation today. You could say we're probably closest in the past 60 years than ever to a potential nuclear war over the U.S. Uh, slash NATO proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. So there's a lot to talk about there. For people who don't know, Aaron is a brilliant historian and political economist. He has a PhD in political economy. And for people who don't know, in the description below, you can check out the series that I host with Aaron and his co-host, Seamus McGinnis. They are hosts of the podcast, American Exception. And Aaron is the book, uh, Aaron is the author of the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, which is a history of the U.S. empire and the U.S. deep state. So... After this episode, you should check out that series. We have many different parts going through the history of the U.S. empire and deep state. But um, Aaron, let's talk about the threat of nuclear war today. It, it is quite scary. And in a second here, I want to show some of these media reports that show how dangerous the situation is. But you've done a lot of research on the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was, of course, in October of 1962. This is the 60th anniversary. And in school... You know, I went to public school in the United States. We're often taught that this was a very dangerous moment. And of course, we're often taught that the Soviet Union was threatening the U.S. with these nuclear missiles in Cuba. Of course, they don't mention that the U.S. had actually deployed nuclear, nuclear missiles to both Turkey and to Italy. That part is conveniently left out frequently in, in U.S. public schools, at least when I was taught it. It was all that the Soviet Union was the threat. And similarly today... We see a narrative that Russia is this evil boogeyman that is threatening the entire world over the, the proxy war in Ukraine. You and I have talked about the proxy war in Ukraine a lot. We can't understand this conflict unless we go back to 2014 when the U.S. government orchestrated a violent coup d'etat led by far-right extremist forces that overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine, setting off a civil war. From 2014 until Russia invaded in February of 2022, as of from 2014 until the end of 2021, according to the United Nations, more than 14,000 Ukrainians died, and the majority of civilian casualties were in Donbass, that is in the eastern region that was part of Ukraine. Now it's it was annexed by Russia after this democratic referendum. So we'll talk more about that. It's a very complicated story, but I just want to point out that. This narrative that Russia is this evil boogeyman just threatening the world with, with nuclear war, nuclear apocalypse, is, of course, extremely facile. And it ignores comments that have been made from top U.S. officials that I want to highlight here that I think are very concerning and I think should provide context for our discussion today. Now, I want to give credit to Dave DeCamp over at Antiwar.com. He highlighted these comments that were made by one of the top U.S. military officials who specifically oversees nuclear forces. And his article is titled, U.S. Nuclear Forces Chief Says the Big One is Coming. He's quoting comments from Navy Admiral Charles Richard, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command. Now, if people think that these comments are exaggerated because obviously this is antiwar.com, well, here is the official transcript from the Pentagon's website. So, I mean... I'll have the, I'm going to, after this uh, video stream, I'm going to post in the description below 
uh, an article at multipolarisa.com with links to all of the articles that we talk about today. But here is the transcript from the U.S. Department of Defense website from November 3rd. And, and I'm going to read an exact quote here. It says, the current conflict in Ukraine is not the worst that the U.S. should be prepared for. Around the corner, said the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, the U.S. must be prepared for much more. And he said, quote, this Ukraine crisis that we're in right now, this is just the warm up. The big one is coming and it isn't going to be very long before we're going to get tested in ways that we haven't been tested in a long time. Now, those are pretty scary comments. What is the big one? Well, uh, it's not really that clear, but there are a few hints that maybe we can look at. So I just want to briefly here look at a few mainstream media reports about U.S. nuclear posturing. Here's a report in The Telegraph, a British conservative newspaper. U.S. to send high-tech nuclear weapons to NATO bases amid rising tensions with Russia. Deployment of B-6112 tactical bombs to Europe comes after Moscow held military exercises showcasing its own ballistic capabilities. So very concerning development. U.S. sending uh, nuclear weapons to Europe. But that's just one of many reports here. Here's a report in Newsweek, again, another mainstream media outlet. Finland may allow NATO to place nuclear weapons on border with Russia. And when they say may, I mean, it's basically confirmed. Finland is joining NATO and has, has pretty much made it clear that they're going to be hosting U.S. nuclear weapons right on Russia's border. And that's not all. Let's look at another article here. This is from Australia's ABC. U.S. Air Force to deploy nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to Australia as tensions with China grow. So not only threatening nuclear war with Russia, but also threatening nuclear war with China. And then finally, here is another report that is very concerning from the Associated Press. U.S. general on rare visit to nuclear-armed sub in Arabian Sea. So any rational, independent viewer of these actions can only conclude that the U.S. is threatening both Russia and China with nuclear weapons. This is extremely provocative and it's extremely dangerous. And I think it gives lie to the fact that Russia is this boogeyman, this aggressive, you know, uh, rogue state that is threatening the world. Well, actually, the U.S. is doing its damnedest to threaten Russia and China with a nuclear war. So now that I've established that, Aaron, I just wanted to provide that context there for people who say that we're just going to be apologizing for Putin or whatever. Now that we see this very aggressive posturing that the U.S. has been taking, I, I just maybe want to get your overall thoughts, what you think about this situation in Ukraine, and then we can get a little bit more into the historical parallels 60 years ago with the very dangerous situation where the U.S. and the Soviet Union came close to nuclear war as well. Right. Well, nuclear weapons came onto the world stage really in, at the exact moment that the U.S. empire steps onto the world stage with the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, these were gratuitous and totally unnecessary uh, war crimes. Japan was defeated at the when Hiroshima uh, was bombed the only real part of their overseas empire that was left was Manchuria and the Soviets had already agreed to intervene there 
and they would a couple days later, uh, the day before the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Once the Soviets entered um, Manchuria, they just they sweat, they cut through the Japanese forces and, and routed them and killed you know people roughly equivalent or even maybe exceeding the number of people killed in the atomic bombings. So this was they they crushed them. And the U.S. still chose to drop the bombs on them rather than negotiate a surrender with Japan, which would have allowed the, empire, the emperor to stay on. They knew that was the only stumbling block. Uh, there's every reason to believe that the nuclear bombs were a signal to the Soviet Union. And the next year, uh, and that the, so Japan surrenders to the U.S., but they had every reason to want to do that anyway, because if they if the Soviets were poised to invade Hokkaido, perhaps, then they would have just taken away the whole foundation of the Japanese nation state. Uh, and they probably would have wiped out the Japanese ruling class. So that was the beginning. And that was the way that Russia perceived it. They perceived it as uh, a, a show of force for them. And then the next year, you know, if you think that like, well, that's dubious, I would encourage you to read the book version of the Untold History of the United States, which is written by historian Peter Kuznick. There's the Oliver Stone miniseries uh, that's based on all of this, Untold History of the United States. I would encourage people to watch episode three, The Bomb, to really get a great overview of the uh, creation and the use of the atomic bomb in World War II. Um, and if you think that it really wasn't about like uh, the U.S. having another tool to like pursue empire after after the war, consider that they threatened the Soviets the next year, their supposed ally. They threatened them to uh, they threatened to nuke them if they did not withdraw from Iran which was not a U.S. territory. It was a British-dominated area. They basically wanted them to withdraw from Iran so that it could return to its status as a British puppet state. Um, so the U.S., from the very beginning, created nuclear bombs, and they were they, they thought they threatened to use them repeatedly against other countries and made plans to use them in different places, like in the 1950s over uh, the French. The French were about to lose to the Vietnamese uh, and they were going to use them in Operation Vulture 1954 to try to save them at the Indian Fu. They threatened to use them against uh, the, the Kimoy and Matsui crisis, which was, uh, you know, sort of a, these are islands like near Taiwan. They almost got into a nuclear war with China over that. Um, they you had thought about using them at different, at, at various times. Uh, even when Kennedy had taken office, they had plans in Laos. We just talked about this recently on uh, on our podcast that, the generals thought like, well, let's just send a force into Laos in 1961. And if the Chinese come in and, and we need to, we'll nuke them over it. So they, the U.S. has been the by far. I mean, they're the only country to use nuclear weapons in, in war. And they use them against a defenseless city and a country that was defeated already, essentially, and was halfway across the world. No threat to the United States at all. They threatened to use them in 1946. They contemplated using them in the 50s as well, even into the 60s. So the U.S. has been... The, the the bad actor that made other countries have to pursue weapons themselves, especially China and the Soviet Union. Soviet Union sets about a crash course to get the bomb as quick as they can. And uh, they're able to get it by 1949, same year that the Chinese revolution succeeds. And uh, then the Cold War really sets off from there. And the U.S. tries to you know, use the, this as part of their arsenal to have uh, basically dominion over the global capitalist system. And uh, part of that was crushing revolutions in former colonies of the world. So Cuba has a revolution and the U.S. doesn't like this because the Cuban revolutionaries nationalized a lot of U.S. business interests. And um, so they use these right wing Cuban thugs that had escaped 
that had been part of the U.S. puppet state there before to try to retake the island with the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, Kennedy was kind of suckered into approving it, but he wouldn't give the military uh, green light to like actually join the fight. And so they suffered a huge defeat. But this was scary to the Soviets and to the Cubans. They didn't want this to happen again. So a couple of years later, 1960, well, more a year and a half later, let's say, they decide to put nukes in Cuba. And there we were. There we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was a, a reckless move by Khrushchev. But the whole goal was to prevent another invasion from the U.S., which they always feared. So the part of the way that got resolved was the U.S. said, OK, we will remove missiles from Turkey and we will make a pledge not to invade Cuba. And that's how it was resolved. OK, with the situation in Ukraine is the U.S. doing something, I think, even more reckless and indefensible than what the Soviets did with Cuba. I mean, in, in Cuba, you had a revolution that was a genuine revolution. President Kennedy himself said, we have to admit that the, the cause of the revolutionaries in Cuba was just. Okay, that's a remarkable statement from a U.S. head of state because it was the U.S. that propped up that Batista dictatorship and all the other ones. So in this case, you had a revolution and then they attempted to put nukes on the weapons. But this is an unacceptable geopolitical threat to the United States. And so they tried to stop this. They put a quarantine around the island. People in the U.S. around Kennedy wanted one of the U.S. to invade and, and Kennedy wouldn't do it. Thanks to Kennedy and McNamara and um Robert, Robert Kennedy, so John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general, they're able to negotiate a way out of uh, this crisis and the world doesn't have to come to an end. In, this, in the case of Ukraine, this was pointed out by people like Mearsheimer and even people like Burns and other American statesmen, other officials said like, yeah, Ukraine is a real provocative, it would be a provocative thing for us to try to go into Ukraine. Well, they did it anyway in 2014. They staged a coup, a very obvious CIA coup. It had all the classic elements of it, you know, organized street protests. I mean, they, in, in Iran in 1953, they had, most of they had the support of 80 to 90% of the people. And the CIA was still able to negotiate street, to pay for street mobs in order to carry out that coup. Okay. In, in Iran in 1953. In Ukraine, it's like 50-50 divided almost. And they spent billions there over, over many years on democracy promotion and other things to manipulate civil society. Uh, so they had a, it was much easier to organize these huge protests. And the secretary or one of the State Department officials, Victoria Nuland, was passing out cookies to government, pro, anti-government protesters. And this is totally, you know, un, un, uh, unprofessional for a, dip, a diplomat, if you believe dip, that the U.S. diplomats are doing what they're supposed to do. And there was false flag violence like there was in Iran in 1953. In this case, in Ukraine, you had these snipers, some of them presumably Nazi guys, uh, CIA assets who were, you know, all of these people that were sh shot from strange locations and then other violence to protesters. So you had all the elements of a coup and you had the U.S. on tape, U.S. officials talking about who they wanted the new leaders to be. It's, it's very obvious. And this was perceived as a threat by, the, by Russia. And so Russia uh, quickly moves to allow Ukraine or Crimea to secede and join the Russian Federation because the U Russians immediately recognized that this was a U.S. operation. Since then, they armed Ukraine, especially under Trump. Obama wouldn't do it because Obama said, look, Ukraine is more important to them than us. I don't want to get us bogged down there. Trump actually reverses that policy, even though he's supposed to be a Russian, I don't know, mind control sex slave or something. I don't really <laughs> even know what they're trying to say about Trump and Russia anymore. But he reverses that policy. They turn it into a fortress uh, with NATO weapons. 
uh, and other economic aid and so on, right on Russia's doorstep. This is perceived as a huge threat to Russia. They try to negotiate an end to this for eight years uh, and were really emphatic about it in December of last year, saying they needed a demilitarized uh, Ukraine, that they had these red lines that needed to be respected. <clears throat> Instead, Zelensky goes to, I believe it was Munich, just like a week maybe before the uh, invasion, and is talking about how maybe Ukraine should think about getting nuclear weapons. Well, if Russia wasn't already set on invading, I mean, they were going to after that. So that's the situation that we're in. Uh, and the, it, it is perceived as a proxy war between the United States or between Russia and the United States, states, states set in Ukraine, a puppet state. And the, uh, the Russians um, don't, I don't think that they want to destroy Ukraine. They have not really gone about doing a kind of like Dresden style demolition of Ukrainian cities. Although who knows what we're really seeing unfold today as missile strikes start and the ground is starting to freeze. But uh, I think that we're at a position where the only, I mean, I'm not a military expert who looks at like the number of tanks everybody has and logistical yada, yada, yada. It just seems like the, the military force of Russia is much greater than Ukraine could ever hope to muster up to and including nuclear weapons, which I don't expect Russia to use. But the U.S. has always talked about using nuclear weapons in, in wars that were much less, uh, you know, in their backyard than this war is for Russia. So it's just madness for these people to have brought us to this point. If the, it seems to me that if for, in order to stop a Ukrainian, Ukraine getting crushed by this much stronger neighbor, uh, the U.S. would have to enter. And it's hard to see how that doesn't lead to nuclear war. So this is the height of just irresponsibility and kind of imperial madness to for us to be in this position. It, it should have been taken into account long ago, and it was by some people that warned about this, officials and other scholars. Mearsheimer's analysis still uh, holds up very well. Uh, and it was that was pretty much right after the fact, 2014, 2015. Uh, it, you cannot have nuclear war between great powers, and therefore any diplomacy you're going to have carried out in these areas must take that into account first and foremost. These people, we should be furious at our leaders for putting us in a position where you could have a nuclear war either by choice or by miscalculation because the, so the Russians might be at a state of high alert looking for some kind of nuclear attack and then misinterpret something and then it could start that way. It could start in a crazy way. So it, it, we should be furious at these people. It's not, the U.S. doesn't care about the people of Ukraine and they're going to get crushed and it's going to become impossible to say like, oh yeah, we were really, really trying to help them. I mean, already like, you know, if they keep helping them anymore, there's just going to be a massive crater where Ukraine used to be. I mean, this is not the kind of help anybody needs, uh, but here we are. It's uh, it's scary and uh, infuriating really. Yeah, Aaron, you made a very important point that does not get emphasized really at all in Western media, which is that Zelensky, you know, the NATO puppet leader in, in Ukraine, has repeatedly talked about getting nuclear weapons before Russia invaded in February. He brought up the possibility. And since then, he's repeatedly raised this point. And we constantly hear in the Western media, you know, these 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 hyperbolic reports about how Russia is supposedly threatening nuclear war because Putin reaffirmed Russia's nuclear posture, which has always been there. I mean, it's not a new policy. He's, he's not threatening nuclear war. He's saying that Russia, if it's if it comes down to nuclear war, will respond like it will use nuclear weapons. So he's saying that you can't just destroy us. I mean, 
That's that's the position of any country with nuclear weapons, and it's not, not the U.S. position, though. That's not the U.S. position is that it may use nuclear weapons to protect its interests or its allies' interests, which is quite a different thing. Yeah, that's a good point. And and I also want to talk about China's position in a bit. China is actually the only permanent member of the UN Security Council that has a position where it refuses; it will never do a nuclear first strike. But anyway, um, I I want to show here. This is from a really good um, uh, political scientist. I think he's of uh, Ukrainian descent, Ivan Kachanovsky in Canada. And he was translating. He's a very good resource for people who want to understand what's going on in Ukraine. He speaks Ukrainian fluently. And he, back in October, he shared this article from a, a local Ukrainian newspaper, which is pro Zelensky, pro NATO. And it disclosed that Zelensky called for NATO to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia. It was during an interview with the Lowy Institute, which is, you know, a pro-war think tank. And and this is not the first time that he's made these comments. I also want to point out that Zelensky called for preemptive nuclear strikes by NATO on Russia, while at the same moment he was being considered as a top candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize. And he ultimately didn't win it, but it did go to a bunch of... Uh, Western government-funded anti-Russian activist groups. But seeing how flippant some of these Western policymakers and pundits are about the possibility of nuclear war is, is quite scary. I mean, I began this discussion today looking at some media reports from the U.S. military, but also if you look at the pundit class, like Anne Applebaum is a classic example. She's this hardline neoconservative figure. She's married to the former defense minister and foreign minister of Poland, who himself boasted of the U.S. being behind the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. And she wrote an article in The Atlantic magazine titled, Fear of Nuclear War Has Warped the West's Ukraine Strategy. And basically, she argues that the West should not be afraid of Russia's nuclear weapons, that the West should go all in and, and put everything they can into waging this proxy war to defeat Russia. And that it's all a bluff. So basically saying like, no, there's not actually going to be nuclear war. I mean, that's it. This is extremely dangerous. And then finally, I want to point out another article that was actually published before Russia even sent a single troop in, which I wrote an article about back in February, a week before Russia invaded, which is where the CIA veteran named Matthew Kronig, who worked for both the CIA and the Pentagon, he wrote an article in Foreign Policy magazine, again, before Russia intervene in, in Ukraine. And the, the title was R Washington must prepare for war with both Russia and China. And he's now a, a uh, major figure at the Atlantic Council, which is NATO's think tank in Washington. And in this article, I highlighted that he called to threaten non-strategic nuclear strikes on China over Taiwan and on Russia. So this is an extremely provocative uh, this is a, these are very provocative measures that these Western officials are taking. And it just highlights everything that you were saying there about this history of the West being the one that has frequently pushed for nuclear war with Russia. I mean, I'm curious if you have if thoughts there just to respond, but maybe we can talk about the situation in 60 years ago, in 1962, in October, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where once again, Moscow was portrayed as some kind of crazy aggressor. 
ignoring the fact that the U.S. had nuclear weapons in Turkey and Italy. Right. I mean, this goes back to one of the foundations of U.S. diplomacy, which is the Monroe Doctrine, which stipulates that uh, the U.S. would not tolerate any colonial expansion in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Um, and by extension, it would uh, not intervene in European politics. Well, as it turned out, the uh, U.S. held pretty true to the, you know, not not accepting any inroads into the Western Hemisphere. But after World War II, massive manipulation of politics in the EU, um, gladio operations, uh, we, stealing the uh, Italian elections, um, it goes on and on, and who we, who knows what <laughs> goes on today. Um, but so that was the, the the thing was the U.S. wasn't going to tolerate them putting any nukes into the United States. That was deemed very provocative uh, and unacceptable. And Kennedy, who was as uh, opposed to war as you could have hoped a U.S. president would be, really more than you would have ever expected a U.S. president to be at this point, he resisted the advice from all of his generals who called for sending invading the island basically and starting a bombing campaign what they didn't know at the time was that the u.s they already had nukes available on the island that were operational that could be used these tactical nuclear weapons so had the u.s had kennedy actually listened to the advice of these generals and so-called wise men um, he would have sparked uh, a nuclear exchange. The, the Cubans had authorization to use those weapons if, if the U.S. did attack the, the island. And then the U.S. would have responded, and then the Soviets would have responded, and uh, we would have had likely, uh, the very likely, the end of the world because you nuclear winter after the fact that it would result in so much ash going into the atmosphere that it would kill all the harvest for 10 years, and almost all of the human population would die off. And it, but thankfully, Kennedy uh, and Khrushchev were able to restrain their, the more hardline people uh, on both sides. And after the fact, you know, Khrushchev and Castro came to recognize this uh, about Kennedy and had to have came to have more of an appreciation for him. Especially Castro. I mean, Castro go, is Castro and Che. Che was Che Guevara was even more gung ho about <laughs> about taking aggressive steps here. But even when Kennedy dies, Castro gets the news because he's talking to somebody that had been secretly sent as a messenger, basically, from the president at the time that the president's assassinated. And Castro says, this is this is wrong. This is bad. Everything's going to change. And it did. The U.S. took a hard right turn. And Kennedy, who had who had turned down uh, very serious uh, recommendations that he start wars in over Berlin, over Laos, uh, it, putting ground troops into Vietnam. Uh, during the Bay of Pigs crisis, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he refused to start a war in all those cases. And uh, th so the US, the US, we were very lucky that that was the case because otherwise we, none of us would be here today. And uh, to go about willfully creating this position is is uh, the height of irresponsibility today. But uh, in the it, back then, you understand the logic of the U.S. demanding that the missiles be gone. But by international law, they had really done nothing wrong. But that really is not that doesn't seem to, to weigh in these issues. So people, when they're talking about these, you know, the realists like I'm not a, a realist myself who thinks that we should just be rule of the jungle and the strong must survive in this world. 
by whatever means is necessary. But realistically, this is the way great powers act. And this is known by the U.S. It's not as though the U.S. empire was governed by not realist logic. Okay, it's not that the U.S. is this liberal enterprise that's governed by like idealism. It's the same sort of you know harsh reality of violence and power that that is uh, the foundation of any empire because you have to have that mentality. So you understand why the U.S. wouldn't want the missiles there, um, and you understand why the Cubans and Russians might want them there. But it had to be resolved, and getting eliminating the risk of nuclear war should be the top priority of everyone um, because nobody wins with that. Um, this this situation in Ukraine, we think, why would the U.S. even do this? It's so far away across the world. Why would they stage this coup a, a, and look to be turning this into an outpost? Um, it's not. It's not. I think similar to the Cuban case. In that, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was an attempt to uh, deter an invasion, and that seems to be largely it. Yes, they probably would have liked to have some strategic, uh, you know, uh, strength. By, that they would get by having missiles that close to them. It could might it might make the U.S. more restrained in some ways, but really it's mainly to deter an invasion. In this Ukraine case, they're doing it to, uh, it's, a, it's not a country that had a revolution. It's a country the U.S. installed and it's right on Russia's border. It is seen as extremely aggressive. And so we really ought to look back at how they were able to resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis and think about that today. The problem is that you have Russia who sees Ukraine as a threat to the existence of the Russian nation state. And then the U.S. sees that Russia, with its ability to sometimes intervene militarily like it did in Syria, that they're a threat to U.S. plans for global domination. So they perceive it as a threat to the U.S. empire, not the U.S. people. This is this is what Americans, if they're confused about it, if they stop and think about it, why is the U.S. risking killing all of us, even the rich guys, over what happens in Ukraine? Like, especially when these areas in question, like actually are majority Russian speakers who would like to be part of Russia anyway. I mean, I'm not talking about North and West Ukraine, but like, this is a very strange explanation and only the analysis of the US as an empire uh, allows us to make sense of it. Otherwise it's just going to be a silly, a silly conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true for pretty much any issue in history or political science if you don't understand that the U.S. is an empire, you can't really understand anything that's happening or that did happen. Now, Aaron, as a historian, as a political scientist, as someone who wrote a history of the U.S. empire, what are the lessons that you think that we should draw from the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago? I don't even like that term, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Of course, it's what everyone calls it. But you could say the U.S.-Soviet nuclear crisis. What are the lessons that we should draw from that 60 years ago. And obviously this is never gonna happen in a million years, but if you were somehow allowed to be an advisor in Washington to you know, uh, the White House, what would you say should be like the lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis that Biden could learn from someone like JFK? Well, that you must do your best to have you know, the political version of sociological imagination, which means that you must be able to understand the position of your adversary and what their uh, incentives are in a particular way and what they deem to be their red lines uh, that they, uh, and what the defense of those red lines would entail. Uh, really just being sensible about understanding the reality of the situation and gaming out responses and counter responses uh, would be a, a way to resolve this. Uh, I think that 
this this is key to uh, to grasp to diplomacy and yet the whole idea of being an empire is that you develop a mindset wherein you d disregard other countries national interests as inconvenient if and uh, if they conflict with your the goals of empire and so some sort of reckoning about the US as an empire and how it has led to uh, sort of errors in comprehension in terms of dealing with the situation that has brought us to this point, like imperial myths and strategies and doubling down on, on failed strategies brought the US to this point and that now it needs to disengage and it probably means taking an L uh, in order to avoid the biggest of all L's, which would be nuclear omnicide, the destruction of human civilization and nuclear war. It's, it, it is just staggering to even to, to think about that it needs to be explained by anybody talking on the internet. It, it shouldn't come to this point uh, uh, that, that we're trying to say, like, how can we somehow make our leaders know that they shouldn't have nuclear war? And I mean, they do issue statements to this effect, but like, it really is, they, they must step back and appreciate each other's interests and, and find a way to coexist. And that's this whole, the whole experience for the Cuban Missile Crisis, it affected Kennedy in 1963, in the summer, so less than a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he goes to American University and he says, we need to make the world safe for diversity. We need to have uh, peace, world peace, not just peace uh, in our time, but peace for all time. And, we, and I'm not talking about a Pax Americana for, forced on the world by American weapons of war. I mean, peace for everyone, a world that's safe for diversity. This is what uh, Kennedy was saying in the months before he was killed. And uh, note that it did not come to pass. And uh, so maybe we should look into the forces that killed Kennedy if we want to see, you know, why it didn't come to pass also. That's a separate issue. But the Kennedy, as sad as his assassination is and Vietnam disaster everywhere, it's also a story that we should uh, see, see as hopeful because we're, we're all still here because there wasn't a nuclear war. And uh, it was, I believe it was during the Kennedy administration. It may have been Kennedy himself, but he said, one of these these generals all have one advantage over us, which is that if we do what they say and then they blow up the world, uh, we're, nobody's going to be around to tell them that they were wrong. That's where we are today. I don't. It's going to be cold comfort to me if all of if everything gets blown up. That like, aha, I I was right about it being very dangerous. I guess this is madness, and it's people have got to see the other side's position and then go from there and find a way to to resolve this without uh, destroying. Uh, human existence. Yeah, in in our series that we've done together, Aaron, we on your based on your book, American Exception: Empire and the Deep State, we talked a lot about C. Wright Mills, a brilliant sociologist, and he coined the term "crackpot realism," and that term is is more and more relevant by the day. But I want to talk about another important book that we have actually talked about in our series, and that is by Daniel Ellsberg, "The Doomsday Machine." I read that when it came out a few years ago, and it was terrifying. It was one of the most scary books I've ever read because Ellsberg was an analyst for the Rand Corporation who had access to confidential secrets. And actually, one of the reasons that he released the Pentagon Papers is not just because of the lies about the Vietnam War, but even more importantly, because he was afraid of the possibility of nuclear apocalypse. And yet, because of this freak accident, I think like he buried all of these papers like in his in his brother's backyard or something. I don't remember the story exactly. A, but there a was, landfill. Like, his, his brother buried it in a landfill. 
and then there was like a big flood or a storm and they could never find the papers again right so he was right. never able to release all those materials that he risked going to prison over but in his book the doomsday machine he discusses for instance how the u.s nuclear system was set up so that if there ever were a nuclear war to break out between the u.s and the soviet union the system was automatic and the u.s would automatically nuke china as well even if china had nothing to do with it, it the system did not allow for human input to change it it was on autopilot it was going to have nuclear apocalypse against both the soviet union and china I mean, I'm curious if you just want to kind of reflect on those revelations that Daniel Ellsberg made in that book. And I know you at your podcast, American Exception, you've interviewed Daniel Ellsberg to talk about some of these historical echoes in terms of the anniversary of Watergate and many of these, you know, historical echoes that we see today. Right. Uh, the Ellsberg story uh, from the inside, really, the inside of the Pentagon is amazing for a couple of reasons. As you point out, the it's abbreviated SIOP, and it was uh, the Joint Chiefs plan for general war. And it stipulated that if there was anything beyond a small skirmish, you would go to general war, which meant nuclear war. And that not only would this mean not launching everything against the Soviet Union, but also against China, because, you know, why not their allies? And this would have this was going to kill 400 million people, in, you know, very, very quickly. And then they didn't know that nuclear war, nuclear winter would also follow. So Ellsberg was very alarmed by this, and he made it his mission to try to inform the White House. But the Pentagon had this, this policy had been created later in the Eisenhower administration. And the Pentagon had a whole set of, of regulations and policies that were designed specifically to keep the White House from even knowing that this plan existed. Like if there was any document that went to anybody in the executive branch, uh, it was to be scrubbed of, of it, even the abbreviation, uh, the SIOP abbreviation of the program or any reference to the actual plan so that they couldn't ask to see it or anything like that. Uh, Ellsberg has to basically be borderline insubordinate or maybe just insubordinate. And he goes around, he goes over the heads of his commanders and gets this information to McGeorge Bundy, who passes it on to Kennedy. And they are alarmed by this. They are very alarmed by how insane these guys are. And uh, Ellsberg is charged with rewriting this policy for general war, which he does. He actually does this right before his 30th birthday, uh, which is pretty impressive. But so it, the, it doesn't just show you how crazy the Joint Chiefs are uh, and the military men and the, the people in, with their fingers on the nuclear button, but it shows you how the, 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 the deep state can exist and manipulate the public state and that democracy has a very loose hold on these ish systems that have a uh, power over life and death. And um, we, who knows what kind of analogous things there are today, but just any looking at the sprawling nature of the U S military empire, the bases around the world, and then thinking about all of the intelligence outfits and off the books operations and cutouts and private contractors we have doing this and that with the intelligence community. Does anybody think that Biden, who seems to be, you know, not quite as sharp as he once was, that he could possibly have a grasp of the uh, totality of the U.S. empire and, and, it, and what it's up to? Uh, it, it's it's very worse. And Kennedy didn't back in 1960. There were he told. People like De Gaulle that De Gaulle said, uh, your CIA is trying to kill me. Did you do that? And De Gaulle, and Kennedy said, well, no, but I don't control those guys. So sorry. 
sorry about that, <laughs> whatever he said, but he was basically saying, I'm not trying to assassinate you, but that doesn't mean the CIA is not trying to assassinate you. Um, and this that was how it was back then. It's only gotten worse. Uh, and this is, Ellsberg gives you a, a, a glimpse into this. His other book, Secrets, also is useful in this way. It's more about a memoir of like the events that led up to him leaking the Pentagon Papers. He was going to leak the nuclear secrets. It was actually someone else who advised him to do the Vietnam stuff first because it's a war that was ongoing and maybe they could stop it. But he wanted to, act, he thought the nuclear stuff was actually more important. Um, with, and it doesn't come out for another 40 years or so. So it's really an amazing story. And Ellsberg's, uh, both his memoirs are, are worth reading to get a sense of the uh, the culture of the national security state and the different practices of it and the nature of the nuclear predicament that we're in because as he makes it clear this is it's lucky that we haven't been blown up yet yeah and we've seen reports more recently from even the new york times thanks to daniel ellsberg he leaked them information and it was reported in mainstream media that in 1958 in the taiwan strait crisis the joint chiefs of staff the military brass they wanted to nuke the people's republic of china over taiwan which is another incredible historical echo of how much things have changed. And to his credit, Eisenhower refused to, to nuke China because it would have led to nuclear retaliation and nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And, and of course, it's not just the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There was another article that the Washington Post published many years ago it's called When Ike Was Asked to Nuke Vietnam. And I shared this on Twitter. And it talks about how the Joint Chiefs of Staff and... Uh, John Foster Dulles wanted to nuke Vietnam. Here's the Washington Post reporting that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff raised the possibility of using nuclear weapons to save the French at Dien Bien Phu. And also they point out here that John Foster Dulles, the brother of Alan Dulles, the founder of the CIA, both of them Wall Street lawyers. John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State. The Washington Post reported here that Dulles speaking about nuclear weapons at a restricted NATO meeting later that month said such weapons must now be treated as in fact having become conventional. So another incredible historical echo. This is them speaking at, in a NATO meeting and John Foster Dulles says nuclear weapons are now conventional. And he also added that, quote, our concept envisions a fight with nuclear weapons rather than the commitment of ground forces. And that this would not, not only involve nuking Vietnam, but also nuking China. So this history really needs to be understood that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretaries of State, top U.S. officials have not only supported, but have ac actively lobbied for, advocated for nuclear bombs, the use of nuclear bombs against China against Vietnam, against the Soviet Union. Honestly, it's it's a miracle that they didn't destroy the planet. And before we pivot, Aaron, here, the last question I wanted to ask you about is something you, you alluded to, nuclear winter. Now, in the 1940s and 50s and up maybe into the 60s, it wasn't really well known scientifically that if there was extensive use of nuclear weapons, it would likely annihilate all life on Earth because it would release so much soot into the air that sun couldn't go through, which meant that plant life would die. And of course, with the circle of life, that means that animals would die, agriculture would die, and people would starve to death, right? So 
it's widely assumed by most real scientists and experts today that there cannot be an extensive use of nuclear weapons because quite literally billions of people would die if not all of human civilization. And yet we've even seen a few op-eds here or there. I think this is part of like the madman theory where like the Washington Post will allow a few of these insane neocons in Washington to write an article saying, we should rethink the nuclear winter thesis. A limited tactical nuclear war could be possible. I'm, can, you, can you respond to this insanity claiming that a limited tactical nuclear war wouldn't risk annihilation of human civilization? Well, the most charitable reading of those comments is that they are purely for signaling what they call signaling in, in game theory and IR that you're signaling to your adversary that you have resolve and are com committed to, you know, defending your position in the conflict or whatever. Uh, but that is even by that reckoning, when you consider that this isn't a conflict of like U.S. versus Russia and the integrity of or survival of either nation state, that it's really about you know empire. Then it becomes totally unconscionable and this so I, I don't they have to know this they can't be that stupid you actually can explain mutually assured destruction probably to a ten, say eight, seven eight ten year old i mean not whatever you could be a kid and understand this so what is really going on here presumably hopefully this is just posturing to uh, act to, to to send some signals to somebody i don't even know what because if it does happen none of it matters anyway that's the joke of the whole thing. You're like, you're talking about a course of action that if it does happen, we're all going to die. And this is quite easy to understand. So why would it, it's the height of irresponsibility for them to even platform people making these arguments at the Washington Post. I mean, I don't, I don't really like what sometimes gets called as like cancel culture or whatever, and like trying to like stop views that you don't like from ever being heard. But I really would be fine if we did, if the media all decided we will not platform people who are advocating for nuclear war, no matter what position they have at this or that establishment think tank. Um, so it, it's it's pure madness. But if you notice, if you go to the, like the bulletin of the atomic scientists, you know the people that keep the doomsday clock, uh, there was a recent article there. I haven't, I don't read them religiously, but the one time I did look at them recently, there was an article, and it was all about the like nuclear taboo, and they had written out of the entire story. The, U, the long U.S. history of threatening people with nuclear weapons and of nuclear uh, of of people in the military brass advocating for the use of nuclear weapons, they totally put that out of the story. So the they they're putting out an idea of like, oh, there's this nuclear taboo, which there is. The U.S. hasn't dropped them on anyone since World War II, but the U.S. that this is not something that the U.S. willingly accepted. It was kind of foisted on the U.S. over time and by convention, and by the fact that. U.S. leaders, as crazy as they were, even LBJ um, and Nixon, wouldn't, wouldn't they, even they didn't use nuclear weapons. And so this eventually led to some kind of uh, enough restraint that the U.S. has sort of stopped talking about using them as a regular weapon of war. But this was not nuclear policy at all. So for the U.S. to act like the way the U.S. is spinning it, and even BAS, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which as I understand is now headed up by somebody with more establishment connections in the past. So that would kind of explain it. But uh, the, this, the idea of nuclear weapons as a perfectly reasonable bargaining chip in international diplomacy, if not an actual viable weapon in military terms, this has been U.S. This has long uh, been a part of U.S. policy. And uh, this, this history needs to be understood as well and uh, needs to be brought, to, brought into 
the common understanding of people so it can help us to resolve this conflict without all of us dying. Yeah, and I just want to recall that when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the British Labour Party and was the most popular leader of the British Labour Party, which is why they had to destroy him and crucify him, he was constantly condemned by the media, this just warmongering media, for refusing to endorse the possibility of a first strike. Of, and he, he said, he also said that not only would I not do a nuclear first strike, I would never use nuclear weapons as prime minister. And he was just excoriated for that. But I do have to point out here, just while we're wrapping up this segment on nuclear war, that in his speech at the United Nations General Assembly this September, the uh, foreign minister of China, Wang Yi, deserves credit. He, he emphasized in his speech, I'll just play a brief clip here, that China in its constitution is says that it pledges to keep to a path of peaceful development and will never use never have a first nuclear strike this is what he said at the un china is the only country in the world that pledges to keep to a path of peaceful development in its constitution it is the only one among the five nuclear weapon states that is committed to no first use of nuclear weapons yeah so i mean it shows that there are countries that have responsible leaders who are willing to pledge not to use nuclear weapons and destroy the planet. And it's really sad that the, that these Western governments are just governed by these maniacs. I mean, the way that China and Russia are described as a whole is just uh, is absurd. The fact that China is being packaged as this uh, nation with plans for world domination and they have like maybe one military base outside of their own territory, something like that. Uh, and they have not attacked a country for quite a long, gone to war with the country. When they did, most recently, it was on their own border and it was very limited. So, it, it, you know, what is it that the U.S. is even, why, the reason that the U.S. perceives China, for example, as a rival and Russia as a rival, Russia rivals the U.S. The ability to dominate everything militarily the way that it wants to. So it's a threat to the U.S. empire. And then China gives countries uh, another partner to do business with and so on then, uh, so that they don't have to do everything the U.S. says. Those are the threats that are represented by these two countries. And for the U.S. people that have run the U.S. empire without any real competition for a long time, this is apparently really horrifying to them. But uh, if you are a person who cares about human existence, then you would need to root for the end of the U.S. empire and a new system where uh, international law is more or less respected, national sovereignty is more or less respected, and countries aren't free to dominate and exploit, you know, massive swaths of the global population just to keep making the rich people richer. Very well said. And yeah, China has one overseas military base in Djibouti, and it's part of United Nations anti-piracy operations. So I think that was a great discussion. Thank you, Aaron. Um, it's always uh, very uh, enlightening to hear your analysis and what we should learn from these past historical episodes like the Cuban Missile Crisis. If people want to support Aaron's show, they can go to patreon.com slash American Exception. And I think with that, we'll probably wrap up here. So thanks a lot, Aaron. All right. Thanks, man. I'll see you soon.